Stand by while NCLA cuts through the noise to signal abuse of administrative power. This is Administrative Static with Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchione. Welcome to Administrative Static. You're here with uh, John Vecchioni and Mark Chenoweth of the New Civil Liberties Alliance. And we have uh, an interesting case where we have submitted an amicus for the Fifth Circuit in a uh, another uh, on behalf of our clients. Um, and the name of the case is Feds for Medical Freedom and a number of other uh, groups suing Joe Joseph Biden as president, a number of other administrative agencies. Joseph this, Robinette Biden. That is true. He, they say R. Biden Jr. Oh, okay. Theirs, but but um, <laughs> so uh, what happened was uh, we've talked about this case a little bit before. Um, th- these are people who were employees at, of the federal government and uh, all of the agencies began saying they were going to do disciplinary actions against any federal employee anywhere in the country, no matter what they did, uh, if they did not get vaccinated against COVID. Now, this case, both our case, which is called Rodden v. Fauci, um, and their case are about whether the the federal government, whether the executive has the right to do this and make these healthcare choices for all um, private federal, I mean, um, non-military federal employees. And uh, we had moved, we had moved for preliminary injunction and the, and the court had said, Judge Brown had said, there's not, um, you know, there's not imminent harm coming. About a month later, three weeks later, the Feds for Medical Freedom folk filed and he said, well, looks imminent to me. And uh, he issued an injunction that protected our clients. So all well, technically Rodney- it was more imminent three weeks later. <laughs> you can't argue with that. So, um, <laughs> So we've followed this case closely because obviously we're out of the same court. And in their appeal to the Fifth Circuit, the, the, the panel ruled two to one, not on any real issue of whether the government has this power or not. But what they said was that the, um, the employment law the federal government operates under, uh, that that law required jurisdictionally everybody's complaints to go up through the um, up through the uh, the administrative hearings. What we've always yeah, like said the, under the Civil you, Service Reform Act, right? Civil Civil Service Reform Act, and and so um, and and so they wanted you to um, so they wanted you to go through their processes. And I, as I always say, the process is the punishment, right? So they assume they'll pick off a bunch of people who won't want to fight through all that. Um, and they'll assume that they can make some deal or uh, make it moot down the road and all the rest of this, uh, all, all the tricks we've talked about in the past. And so uh, we don't believe, and the, the plaintiffs here certainly don't believe, that there is uh, a necessity when you're saying that the policy itself is um, is unlawful to go through individualized proceedings, which all are about well, did you do this violation of your job or not? 
not whether or not whatever it is is not within the power of the president. And so what, what we have done uh, is put in an amicus brief. Uh, the plaintiffs in that, the, I guess the petitioners in that case, because they're petitioning for uh, a hearing on bonk. And that means they want the entire active judiciary of the Fifth Circuit to address this question. They don't want a panel decision that was two to one affecting the lives of so many people unreviewed by the by the uh, en banc court, by the whole Fifth Circuit. And I certainly understand why that is, and it certainly seems reasonable. And so we join that exact argument, except you don't just join an amicus brief to say the same thing. So um, one of the things is, as you know, we had the Cochrane case where the SEC made similar arguments that there was no jurisdiction in the federal court to talk about whether what their processes were, were unconstitutional or not. And the Fifth Circuit had come out our way. And so we make an argument about Cochrane. And um, although not at the panel stage, meaning the Fifth Circuit had to go on bonk before it came out our direction. That is correct. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, 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 Yeah. that's that's obviously. Yeah. So we had lost there as well. So so we are we are looking to help these plaintiffs, because the other thing is, while this case has been appealed, the injunction protecting our clients so they can go about their business uh, and and do their jobs and not be uh, have anything bad happen to them while that went on has all been in place and it doesn't come out of place until they've remanded the the, the federal courts have remanded it back to the district court to to dismiss it they that's the order the order is to dismiss the case at least the feds for medical freedom case but I have a feeling judge Brown is not going to see a lot of difference in our case try as I will will to uh, differentiate it and and so what do you have you have the situation where um, these people are imminently going to be sent in the morass of the administrative state. And so, uh, you know, they certainly put in an, an amicus as soon as they could for that reason. Um, and I and and one of the other reasons and, and our colleague, Greg Dolan, uh, worked on this brief. He's our new colleague. Right, uh, Mark? He's a. Um, yeah, brand new. A new brand new. He's a yeah, brand new professor at uh, University of Baltimore School of Law, and then has uh, come on board with us part time as a uh, crackerjack litigator. And he did a sort of a deep dive into the CSRA about um, Civil Service Reform Act, and he noticed, and I don't think anyone made this argument before, that if they just punish you a little bit, if whatever they do to you is less than fourteen days. You don't get to have that reviewed by a court. That that doesn't even go up to higher, you know, the higher ups at the CSRA pecking order. So if they just want to keep um, picking at you, they can keep doing this without any type of uh, of review. Never gets to the federal courts, no matter what you do. All they have to well, do under is the, you know, under the government's interpretation. Right. Exactly. Under the government's inter- interpretation. So I, he laid out in stark terms what they could do here and, and how this would, would sort of draw in gamesmanship by the government if they didn't want review of it. So they could harass the employees to such extent that they would go and, and uh, take, you know, give in to whatever the government was saying. And one Fortunately, of the things- Fortunately, John, you, you've never known a federal agency to engage in any gamesmanship around, uh, around any litigation matters. No, right? certainly not. It's not like- 
it's not like the CDC went back. I mean, just think the CDC. I mean, in all this litigation, they don't go, oh, well, the courts ruled. I guess we can't get around that. Time to go back and do constitutional stuff. That apparently is never their, their driving goal. It's always like, well, this is what we want to do. So we will, you know, move forward with it. And um, and he says, look, what if they what if uh, the the executive wanted you to do a number of other things? What if they wanted you to wear sunglasses because you get less cataracts or something? I mean, what can they order you to do on on or, or face termination or or uh, other um, other penalties for deciding on your own health care? And there's a lot of them. I mean, there's millions upon millions of federal workers subject to this. And what I, I will point out on the merits, one of the things that's very interesting to me is that the president, um, and this happened as well, this happened while we were briefing this, and I think it's interesting, Mark, and I think I sent you the notice of this. The Military Review Board was reviewing three uh, officers who had refused to get a vaccine uh, against COVID. And yeah, this they is had, the appellate, the appellate uh, group within the military uh, justice system. Yeah. And so they had been terminated. And but the law for the military says that if the president wants you to get a vaccine, it can't be the secretary of defense. The president has to issue an order if the vaccines are not accepted by the FDA, if they're deemed experimental. And it may seem odd that the covid vaccines are still deemed ex experimental in any case, since we use so many of them. But under the law, a lot of them are even now. And there's a whole fight about which ones are experimental and how long and all the rest of it. But they said, look, these were experimental. And if you want a soldier to take them, then you have to have a presidential order. Well, I I have always felt that was a strong art. And, and, and so they were all uh, put back on their jobs. And, and the question here is, there's no statute like that for the president, for civilian employees. We expect less of civilian employees as far as following the commander in chief's orders. Uh, historically, it goes all the way back. Uh, it goes back before the Constitution, I'd say, to, to George Washington. So I, I do think that um, that there's a there's a big problem here. Uh, and to get out of it on a jurisdictional matter, which is not unheard of either, Mark. I mean, that happens all the time, right? Sure, sure. Um, so the panel reached for the jurisdictional matter to avoid the questions and send it back so that all these people will be in the maw of the exact same uh, punishment program that is run by the same people who have ordered them to get the vaccination that they don't want. In our case, these people have all had COVID and they have more immunity than some of these uh, vaccines give you. Um, well, I'm glad you mentioned the emergency use authorization statute, because I, I do think that that it's a strong argument that the fact that the EUA statute says you can't make soldiers do this without the commander in chief and doesn't say anything about any other federal employees, uh, that doesn't suggest that the commander in chief has more power over those other federal employees. It should imply that he has less power or no power at all over those other federal employees. And the fact that that's not an easy thing for the courts to, to conclude, uh, frankly, baffles me. And me, me too. I, I've been stunned by it. Um, I just can't. Uh... I can't I can't figure it out because obviously if um, and anyway, so we also put in why it's important. I, I think the last part of our brief, which is pretty important, is why 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 take. Uh, why sit on bonk? Why get all those judges time and effort and. Um, and certain circuits, we always say the Second Circuit has 
you know, if you see if you see the second circuit sitting on bonk, you're you're you know, you're watching a unicorn. But the other circuits, they sit for good reason. And the good reason here is, you know, there's 10 million federal employees. You don't just let it slide. So uh, we hope that the court does sit and get us done And we'll be back in just a little bit. Welcome back to Administrative Static. Mark Chenoweth here with John Vecchioni. And John, I wanted to, to uh, discuss a little bit more one of the cases that we talked about earlier uh, uh, this month, or I guess last month at, at the point that this will air. Uh, and that is uh, uh, this Jarcusy v. SEC case that, the, that was decided by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. And I'll I'll refresh our our readers' recollection, uh, listeners' recollection rather, uh, here in a minute on on that case. But the reason I want to talk about it is because the left has come absolutely unglued with this decision. <laughs> and uh, you know, aside from the perhaps uh, sport of watching people, it's it's sort of like uh, if your side wins on election night, turning to the other the other side's uh, news preferred news station and and watching the uh, the reporters. Uh, uh, stare in disbelief and so forth. I mean, it's, it's that kind of thing here with, with what's happening uh, with Mr. Jarkissi. So, so what happened and why is the left so apoplectic about this result uh, to the point where folks are talking about this being the end of the administrative state? And, and first of all, you know, let me say, uh, I think that's overblown. And, and we'll come back to that in a minute. I don't think that the case is, I mean, if the case did stand for that proposition, that would be earth shattering. But I, I think that that overstates uh, just how dramatic a decision this is. However, I do think it's a dramatic decision. I just don't think it's quite as dramatic as the uh, as the chicken littles who uh, who would have you believe that the administrative state sky is falling uh, are are uh, uh, are characterizing it as. So, as a reminder, uh, what happened in what happened to George Jarkissi is that he uh, he's an investment professional, host of a nationally syndicated talk radio program. And by the way, I'll just note, uh, John, that uh, our client, Ray Lucia, had a talk radio program as well. Makes you wonder whether the SEC has it in for investment advisors who <laughs> happen to have uh, radio programs. But in any event, <laughs> uh, so if you're going to keep up this podcast, John, you might not want to uh, I give no advice. investment advising on the side. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm all out. But uh, but in any event, uh, without going into the the details of the SEC's uh, accusations, uh, it it hauled Mr. Jarkissi before an administrative law judge, and he tried to challenge the constitutionality of that in federal court. In fact, in the in Washington D.C., and the the trial court uh, said no, and it went up to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, and it it denied jurisdiction and said nope, you got to go through the entire administrative proceeding before you could raise these constitutional objections to the proceeding. So he did so. And he underwent a seven-year journey through the gauntlet of the administrative proceedings, renewing his constitutional claims uh, along the way. 
And eventually, after the SEC ruled against him, and there's appeal then to the commissioners themselves, the, the, that is the board of the SEC, and then they ruled against him, then that was a final order that he could finally take on direct appeal uh, to, in this case, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. And at that point, he was finally, for the first time, able to raise his constitutional objections to this whole proceeding that he had been that he had been put through. And and you'll remember, John, that that the three main objections that he had were that he was denied the right to a jury trial, which he definitely was. Uh, that uh, that there's these problems with SEC ALJs that they enjoy multiple layers of protection from removal by the president. So that violates the president's uh, duty to take care under Article 2 of the Constitution. And then the third issue is that Congress unconstitutionally delegated legislative power to the SEC by failing to provide an intelligible principle by which it could decide whether or not to bring cases like that one against Mr. Jarkissi in their in-house proceedings or in federal district court, because the SEC could have brought this in federal district court from the very beginning where Mr. Jarkissi would have been able to, to bring up the constitutional defenses, but they chose not to do that. The SEC chose to put him through uh, the grist mill uh, of a SEC internal proceedings and try to wear him down. And you know what? They, they probably did wear him down a little bit as a, uh, as, as a matter of fact. Uh, but they didn't prevent him from finally getting justice from the Fifth Circuit, which agreed with Mr. Jarkissi on all three of those points. It agreed that he had been denied his right to a jury trial. It agreed that the ALJs, uh, that there was a problem with their multiple layers of protection from removal. And it even agreed that there was a non-delegation problem with the SEC uh, getting to decide without input from uh, from from Congress whether to uh, take these cases one direction uh, or another. And the SEC says, well, look, this is just a matter of, of prosecutorial discretion. And some of the some of the commentary I've seen about the case, John, has said, oh, wait, now this is just a matter of prosecutorial discretion as to whether to, to prosecute somebody in the in-house court or in the or in the uh, uh, in federal district court. But I, I'm not sure that's right. First of all, I'm not sure that's a correct analysis of what constitutes prosecutorial discretion. I think prosecutorial discretion is what charges are you going to bring and not bring and whether you're going to bring any charges at all against somebody. In terms of the decision where you're going to bring the case, typically that's not a matter of prosecutorial discretion because if it's a criminal case, the constitution requires that the case be brought in the district where the crime was committed and it has to be in a district that was ascertained before you know, ahead of time, and there's no discretion to the prosecutor as to which jurisdiction they're going to bring that case in. Now, there may occasionally be cases uh, where a particular fact pattern gives rise to both state causes of action and federal causes of action, and there may be, you might think of it, I suppose, as prosecutorial discretion as to who goes first, the state or the federal, uh, and sometimes you see some, uh, uh, you know, some strategic uh, actions there by, by prosecutors. But I don't think it's right to say that what was happening at the SEC was a matter of prosecutorial discretion. Certainly the Fifth Circuit didn't see it that way, and, and I don't think it was uh, either. But uh, it, the, one of the reasons why I think that this is so overblown, John, with, with how people are, are complaining about the case is this really all goes back to Dodd-Frank. 
which is what what was Dodd Frank 2010 something like that. Yeah, uh, it was. This has not been since time immemorial. No, this doesn't go back to the 1930s and the Securities Exchange Act. the The ability for the SEC to bring these additional kinds of cases in front of its in-house judges is something that the uh, President Obama and the overwhelmingly Democrat Senate in that 2000, you may remember when he was elected in 2008, he brought a Senate in of 59 or 60 senators. And, and that's how and he also got Obamacare. After the, and, after the financial crisis is the other key thing. That's right. Like, that's more. right. And and so they used this, this supermajority that they had in the Senate to ram through a bunch of legislation, including Dodd-Frank. And some of these provisions in Dodd-Frank are just, frankly, no pun intended, unconstitutional. Uh, and the, the fact that it's taken this long for the courts to, to weigh in on this, it, this it, that, it, that doesn't mean that, oh, these courts are, are political and it's the Trump judges that are, that are doing this. It doesn't mean that, that, uh, uh, that, that all these years have gone by since, since Dodd-Frank was, was passed and that, you know, that this should be water under the bridge or something. George Jarkissi is literally, I think, John, the first person to make it all the way through to the Court of Appeals after going through one of these, uh, you know, one of these uh, cases. I mean, it, so the the indictment here is how long it takes to make it through the process, and process before you ever get these constitutional questions settled. And and they also, you know, it's not like the SEC doesn't know how to sue people in federal court. Uh, you That's know, right. it's it's not like the federal court is some strange, you know, crazy place for them. That's right. I mean, it, it doesn't have the same uh, home cooking or, or home court advantage that being in front of the SEC ALJ has, but it certainly uh, would be a fair place for such a, a matter to occur. And one might think that if there were constitutional questions with the tribunal, that maybe you'd be better off going to the SEC uh, district court. But the SEC doesn't like to do that because they don't win as often there. You know, they only win like I can't remember, John. It's like seventy percent of the time instead of ninety percent of the time, or something, something like that. I mean, that it, they still win an overwhelming percentage of the time, uh, but because of that difference, uh, that little bit of advantage, that being oh, actually twenty percent is a pretty sizable advantage. That that significant twenty percent increase bump they get in in advantage by being in front of their in-house tribunal, they don't want to take these course these cases to federal district court. And Dodd Frank said that they didn't have to. But my point is, even if if George Jarkissi wins across the board, if the SEC takes this up and the S and the the Supreme Court decides with him, and this becomes national law and not just Fifth Circuit law, it still doesn't it doesn't repeal the Securities Exchange Act. It doesn't repeal the ability of the SEC to bring some matters in front of uh, its its uh, its own uh, judges. What it does is it repeals a portion of Dodd Frank from, as they say, from 2010. So. You know, going back 12 years. And I, I, I can't remember, John, but I think the SEC existed uh, before 2010 and, and was yeah. and was bringing charges against people. I mean, I, I don't Correct. think Dodd-Frank was the beginning of, uh, uh, you know, of, of justice uh, for financiers. I'm pretty sure it was happening uh, before that uh, as well. So so the sky is falling crowd. I'm sorry, it doesn't have any sympathy for me. The other thing that's that's a big part of this decision is the fact that Mr. Jarkissi did not get a right to trial by jury. And here you have the SEC crying tears because it wants to bring a million dollar judgment against him and they don't ever want to give him the benefit of a trial. 
Well, I'm sorry, SEC, but there's something called the Seventh Amendment uh, to the Constitution of the United States. And it's not one of the amendments we talk about very often. It's not like the First Amendment or the Second Amendment or, or even the Fifth Amendment. It's not as much a part of the popular culture because the government doesn't violate it very often. I mean, that's why, frankly, we don't talk about it that often. Uh, and but here I, they they absolutely have violated it. Not, not only have they violated, but, you know, in every state constitution, this was the one thing. Jury trials were the one thing in every one of them. Like yeah. every other and every single one, it was like a big deal. No, you can't get out of the jury trial it was a big deal then. And it stayed a big deal. And so it shouldn't have been a shock. No, it shouldn't have been a shock. It's the right result. And those who think that the that the sky is falling because a guy has to have a jury in order to have a million dollar government judgment against him need to get their heads examined. This is uh, this is the right result. I think if it goes up to the Supreme Court, Mr. Jarkis is going to win on that count at least. We'll be back with more right after this.